You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord. So we're beginning a new series called Health and Holiness. Health and Holiness. And this is going to probably take us until the end of November. Health and Holiness. To begin, our health is for holiness. And our holiness is for other people to make them whole. Many of us, and you've heard me say this before, many of us grew up hearing about holiness as how we are separate from others and we live better than they do. And that really did a lot of good things for the world, that kind of attitude. Not so. Holiness, Jesus redefines when he shows up to the earth. Up until the moment when Jesus showed up, holiness was separating yourself. And then Jesus shows up and he starts touching every unclean thing. And every unclean thing does not infect Jesus, but his holiness infects every unclean thing. And so holiness is redefined for us, not as the separation of a bunch of good people from a bunch of bad people, but the entrance of people who the life of God has touched into the world so that the life of God can touch other people through lives that the life of God has touched. God has touched your life, not so that you can sit up in the church and enjoy the good life, but so that you can leave here and go to all the terrible places with all the terrible people. I put that in quotes if you're listening online, because we are all the terrible people. We're just the terrible people who've been touched by an amazing Heavenly Father. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there's no such thing as the church and the world. We say things like, you know, I'm in the church, I used to be in the world. Where do you think we're located? Mars? Feels like it sometimes. We are not the church versus the world. We are the part of the world that realizes its Messiah had been saving it all along. And now we leave with good news for the rest of the world, not the world, the rest of the world, to say, you are being saved as much as we've been. Now, more than ever, it makes sense why the gospel is called good news. Because there's horrendous, misdirected news everywhere we look. 
I'm the only one? Me and the child who's crying? Praise the Lord. I feel you. I feel you. I'm going to need the amens this morning. I can tell right away. Everyone's like, well, we celebrated your birthday yesterday, so now we're just going to stare at you today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you all so much. Our life is not about separation. Our life is about doing what Jesus did, incarnating ourselves into the darkness and changing it. But we got to get some of our own stuff together. Amen? Like, I have to get myself a little bit together. And here's what we learned over the last year. A year ago, Hurricane Ida just messed up all of our plans down there. And we learned something that everybody knows, that a flood is when water goes into a building but never leaves the building. It just stays in the building and collects and gets deeper and deeper. Now, how many are glad there's water in the building right now? Who flushed the toilet so far today? How many are glad there's water in the building? Amen? It's good that there's water in the building. There's water downstairs for our children to drink. Is this a good thing? When you turn on the faucet to wash your hands and water comes out, this is a good thing. But how many know it's also good that the water that's in the building is now finally properly also leaving the building and not collecting in it? That is a metaphor for the church because so many churches have a river of life that flows on Sunday morning, but it never leaves the building. It's everyone collects, and we got our little clique or cult, whatever you want to call it, and they're unsaved, and we are saved, and there's holiness here, and there's unrighteousness out there, and it's the kingdom of God here, and Sodom and Gomorrah out there, and we're just filling up with this river like Ezekiel. It's going up to my knees and up to my waist. Whenever I read that, I get a lot of anxiety now. Every time I read about water in the temple, I'm like, God, please, no more. No more water in the temple. But it has to properly enter, and then it has to properly leave for there to be health. And we can't just have the good works of God happening in here and not leaving and happening out there. Because if all we do is exercise our goodness in here, we will do what a sewage backup did a year ago. We will ruin the place. Because this is meant to be the mouth of a river. But this river is meant to flow in a healthy way out into all the world. There are three ways. I mean, think about the woman who met Jesus in John chapter 4. She's living a drought life. Not her water jar going at noon. She's living a drought life, and she meets the river of life himself. And what happens? A river of life bubbles up inside of her, and she drops her water jar, and she runs to the people, and she says, I met a man who told me everything I ever did, and they all run to meet Jesus. And then they say to the woman, we're no longer coming because we met Jesus. We're, coming, we're no longer coming because you told us to. We're coming because we met Jesus. She had a river of life flow up in her, and it filled her life and then exited her life the right way into the lives of the people of Samaria, and then they came and got filled, and then they left and told the Samaritans, there's someone out there who doesn't think that we're second class. There's someone out there who's here for us too. That's how the river of life is supposed to happen. We're supposed to, get ready for this one, we're supposed to be here on Sunday 
I need to look at everybody so the five people I'm looking at don't feel, okay? <laughs> we need to be here to leave here, to bring what we got here out there. That's what we're here for. We're not here to just have our best life now. My best life has to overflow into somebody else's worst life. Otherwise, I'm not living my best life. My best life is not the best life that God has for me if my best life isn't freely offering itself to somebody else's worst life. This river of life, where the tree of life is on both sides of the river now. Man, oh, I can, we'll leave politics alone. The river of life is on both sides of the river. The tree of life is for the healing of the nations. This is a glimpse into what heaven is going to be like. It is for the healing of the nations, which I'll leave a nice unanswered question for you. In heaven, nations are going to still need to be healed. There's still work of the ministry to be done. Even when Jesus comes back or appears or begins to heal, we're still going to be part of that healing. When Jesus returns, we're going to be part of the returning process with him to heal nations. This river of life is the kind of water where nations that are opposed to each other can come and receive therapy from the tree of life. What better day to remind ourselves of that than September 11th? where God is healing the nations, not making one more right than the other, healing the nations, reconciling the peoples. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and the church said, amen. We can be like the spies who are bringing some fruit from that life into the present moment now. We don't have to wait for Jesus. We're called to be evidence, reconciling evidence that things are healing, which means we should be around people that are not reconciled to the church. And we should be witnessing to them. Remember witnessing? I had an uncle, Eric, who, when I get older, realized he was just a really good friend of my dad that we all called Uncle Eric, which has never been not strange to me, but I digress. One day he was like, so I was little, and he was like, so you want to be a pastor when you grow up? And I'm like, yes. He's like, you want to minister? I was like, yes. He's like, you want to minister with me? I was like, yes. He goes, let's go get a ram's horn and go down to the riverfront and peak skill, stand on a picnic bench and tell everybody they need Jesus. And I'm like, nah, man, I got things to do. G.I. <laughs> Joe is coming on, and then Boy Meets World comes on after that, man. I got things to do. I got a whole lot of stuff going on. What? That's not witnessing. That's invasive. That's not witnessing, that's yelling at people. It barely worked then, it will not work now. What does witnessing look like? We see it with Jesus in this text. For starters, what does going after the one sheep that left the fold, what does that look like? We hear the analogy and we're like, yes, Jesus goes after the one, we need to also. What does it look like, though? What does that mean? You going to go tell somebody they're a lost sheep? I'll be right here. Come back in five minutes. Tell me how it worked. First of all, first of all, we're all the one, and God is the 99. 
That's number one. I need to be found as much today as I did the day that I said I got saved. I need to be found as much now as I did the day that I said I got saved. See, by the time I said I got saved, I had already been saved in order to be like I got saved. So something happened long before I said yes to make me say yes. But I'm still the one now. I still keep going astray. And God still relentlessly goes after the one. But we're not less the one than anybody out there. We're the one. So what is witnessing? Witnessing is saying he's here to get us. <laughs> he's here to get us. The helicopter showed up. The boat has arrived. He's here to get us. Not he's going to save you. He's here to get us. You realize how much less invasive that is and how much truer it is? What does looking for a lost coin look like? I know because I've lost my wallet way too many times. And if you've heard all the stories, I've lost them creatively. I left my wallet on train coming back from a Knicks game. And three weeks later, somebody had it for me with everything still in it. I know what it's like to lose something. But what does it mean? We're not the nine coins that were not lost. We're all the coin that was lost. And we need Jesus to scour the house. And this brings me to a very important point. Please notice something because this is for us first. The sheep that was lost was already part of the fold. And the coin that was lost was, all, was found in the house. Don't let these details skip by you. We have always acted like the lost coin was a lost person who wasn't part of the church. But where was the coin found? In the house. The coin was lost in its own home. There's nothing scarier than being saved, being part of a church, and still being lost. The coin wasn't found down the street. It was found in a cushion in the house. The one that got away from the 99 was already part of the 100. It wasn't someone who got saved. It was someone who was part of the fold. Someone who was part of the fold got lost. It's one thing to have never been part of a family. It's one thing to have never been part of a church family and then find one. It's another thing to have grown up in it and realize after a long time I'm as lost in the church as I was before I even came. I'm lost in myself. I'm lost in my own world. I'm even lost in my own church. I'm just dealing with a season of lostness in my life right now. And I need to be found. That sets the table for ministry, for witnessing. This is not about found people going to find lost people. This is about Jesus finding everyone. This is about us witnessing to the fact that we're lost and we're always being found. So what does that process of witnessing look like? These are analogies. Hundred sheep, one got away. Ten coins, one was lost. They're analogies. But what does witnessing look like? It looks exactly like what Jesus was doing when he told the parables. Sitting and eating with people.
Pastor, give us the techniques. What do we say to skeptics? How do you refute somebody who's showing that there's no such thing as God? Would you like to come over for dinner and continue this conversation? I promise you, there are pastors out there trying to tell you how to outwit other people. Eat with them. Well, what does is, what is going for the one look like? It looks like what Jesus was doing. He was sitting and he was eating with three groups of people. Tax collectors. Well, he was really with two groups of people. Tax collectors and those who are grumbling, and they're all sinners. Like, I, I've always hated the phrase tax collectors and sinners, as if the tax collectors aren't sinners. Methinks they are. <laughs> Every April. Right around Easter. What do we say? I know somebody, and they're having a health crisis, and they used to know the Lord, and they don't anymore, and, and I have to say something before, before the cancer takes them. I'm going to tell you what to say, everyone. Come here. Shh. Would you like to come over and eat? <laughs> yes, John, and you would like steak because you're bougie as anybody else in this entire room. My God. Yo, let me just tell you now, since he likes to interrupt my sermons, John is high maintenance, everybody. I just want you to know this. John is high maintenance. Right, Steph? Hey, Amen. We have this thing where it's like, tell me how to get, we're essentially saying, tell me how to coerce somebody. No. Eat with them. Do you realize the whole Bible, the whole word of God given to us is about meals. A meal in the Garden of Eden that was eaten the wrong way that destroyed everything. A meal just before the last garden that's given back to us to be eaten the right way. The whole Bible swings on the hinges of two meals. Sitting and eating was so powerful it destroyed the earth. And sitting and eating continues to be so powerful that the church survives around the Eucharist for the last 2,000 years. Saying come and eat with me is the most Christian thing we could ever say almost in our life because it's how everything happened we knew he rose from the dead because we sat and we ate with him you knew he rose from the dead because how because there was some like metaphysical biological method no he ate honeycomb he wanted honeycomb i love honeycombs i don't think they're the same ones jesus ate mine are kellogg's they are delicious you ever eat, Rob, I know you eat cereal. You ever eat so much cereal, you like cut the roof of your mouth a little bit because you're just aggressively eating it like it's the, like Jesus is about to come back and you want to finish the box before he does because priorities. You guys are making me work this morning, man. I'm trying, I'm trying. That's what witnessing is. What does it look like for somebody to be found? Them sitting at your table. How can you say that? I'll say what I said the last few years, and I'll continue to say. When you were baptized, you became part of the body of, say it again, the body of. When you were baptized, you became part of what we call the local church or the body of. 
So when somebody is sitting in your house eating, they're eating with part of the body of... They're found. They're found. They're with him when they're with us. This is why Jesus said when they receive you, they receive... And when they receive me, they receive my Father who sent me. Yes, it's poison ivy on my arm, just so everybody knows this. Everybody looking at my arm. Some thought I got a tattoo. I'm like, I'm not that cool. Like, go Giants. No, it's tattoo because I'm a really good husband. It's poison ivy I meant because I'm a really good husband. I was working in the yard for Jacqueline. <laughs> it's just something I do. I bear the marks of my love for her. I'm dead serious. You think I would be in the yard pulling weeds if I wasn't married? My house would be so overgrown. As long as it doesn't go in front of the TV. I don't know why that's amazing to anybody. She's the reason why I was weeding a garden. If that's not amazing, I'm sorry. I'm just not that. I'm not Steve Relier. I don't do it for a living. I do it because I was told to do it. And there's repercussions if I don't. I love you, Jacqueline who's home with our sick little Theo today. I know. Where are we? What happened? Poison ivy. Sophia calls it nivy. <laughs> Dad, you have nivy on your arm. What is it about Jesus? You ready? Who was eating with Jesus? Tax collectors, sinners, and then people who showed up to grumble. The love of God drew sinners to himself. Jesus is the life of God, and the life of God is the kind of life where people where, that are being told by all the religious affiliations, you're nothing, you're wrong, you're evil, those people feel drawn to Jesus. But so do the grumblers. They showed up to say, Jesus, why are you eating with Ron and Essie? You should not be eating with Ron and Essie. They're heathens. <laughs> but the fact is, they're there to yell at Jesus. You want to know why? Because the love of God drew them too. It wasn't hate that drew them. It wasn't cynicism that drew them. It was Jesus who drew them. Because Jesus draws the people who are living worldly to him. And then Jesus draws the moralists and the legalists to him as well. So who are these three groups of people that we're supposed to minister to also that we all are? Tax collectors. Sinners and grumblers. Tax collectors. I love this. Tax collectors are people labeled as sinful, but really just not that liked. This is a really important lesson for all of us to learn. Tax collectors are people labeled as sinful, but really, they're just not that liked. See, we have a tendency to take people who do things that we don't like and call what we don't like sinful because we like to have mastery over people. And so we use the word of God like Peter used a sword, and we just chop people's ears off who are doing what we don't like, even if what they're doing is something we don't like, but yet it is fulfilling the word of God like the person who was arresting Jesus was. Was that man not serving the will of God that he would be numbered among the transgressors, that he would fall into the hands of sinful men? And Peter was trying to stop it from happening, and Jesus said, just because you don't like what he's doing doesn't mean it's wrong. That is deep for you. 
we take people do things that just grind against our gears. We just don't like it very much. And right away, we call it sinful because we don't want to have to grapple with the responsibility that God wants us around people who we don't like. And it's not like they're going to be around us because they'll finally stop being the way that we don't like. We'll become better, not them. We'll become better and learn to be big enough to be around people that do things differently than we do. Tax collectors. And then grumblers. Grumblers. Everybody loves grumblers. You have anybody at work that just complains? No matter what happens, they complain unless something good happens to them and then they complain that nobody's like shouting it from the rooftops. Grumblers are people whose first thoughts are their only thoughts. Listen, everybody who just said yes, you're a grumbler too. I'm a grumbler. I'm about to watch the Giants, 425. I'm a grumble because my first thought, they stink, is going to be my last thought. Even when they made it to the Super Bowl, I was like, they're going to blow it in the fourth quarter. Like, I just never, I'm still not sure they won in 2007. That's how cynical I am. I still think we're going to find out one day that we lost in 2007 and Tom Brady won. Pray for me. Yeah. People whose first thoughts are their only thoughts. And then they think something, an emotion registers, they make an assessment, and all of a sudden that's the only way that they think now. And nothing can ever change their mind. And all they do is complain and be cynical and judge. Listen, this is us too. This is us too. Our first thoughts tend to be our only thoughts. And Jesus desperately wants us to have first thoughts and then second and third and fourth ones. Who are the sinners? I shouldn't have to write this on the screen. Everyone in the parable except for Jesus. Who are the sinners? The tax collectors. Who are the sinners? The grumblers. Who are the sinners? The ones reading this parable today. Marissa, who read it? Sinner. <laughs> Pastor Bill, the one who heard it? Sinner. Jacqueline, watching from home? Righteous. righteous. We have to be healthy and we have to be holy. Here's what I love about Jesus. And maybe this is because I'm an extrovert, but this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus was having a party. And at this party, sinners showed up. And he's like, I got you. Sit down. Relax around me. And they can. And then tax collectors show up. And Jesus is like, come on in. And probably the sinners were like, don't invite them. But Jesus like, you can't spoil my party. And then grumblers show up. And his party is still not spoiled. Jesus is the space that sinners and tax collectors and grumblers can all sit in and all leave with the same parable. All leave with the same word all leave with the same love and the same compassion and the same mercy and the same exhortation and the same rebuke, they all are welcome in his life. And Salem, they all should be welcome in this building. Every human soul should be allowed to be functional and fruitful in this building because no human is reduced to their sin. No human is ever reduced 
to their sin. They're not in Jesus' eyes, and they certainly shouldn't be in ours. What does it mean to witness? It means to come here on Sunday morning so that we can receive the river of life that we're supposed to leave these doors and go be. It is a testament to the resurrection of Jesus Christ when our homes like the tomb are empty on Sunday morning because we've gathered in Galilee to meet him, to receive a message, to receive a word, and then go tell it to all the world. That's what we are called to do. That's healthy. That's holy. That we receive something. When, when we first, when, when Pastor Mark and I got priested and we started wearing the collars, people were like, aren't we all priests? And we we're like, yes, everyone is. God has chosen some people to be priests in front of other priests so that you all can see in a broken symbol what we're all supposed to be. It's why I need a pastor in my life, because I need to see in Bishop Quentin Moore of Hutchinson, Kansas, who's preaching right now at the Father's house, I need to see in him a broken symbol of who I'm supposed to be. I don't remember to take out the garbage, let alone be a good Christian without seeing an example. I lose my keys. I'll lose my salvation faster. I need to see somebody who stands as a symbol, who, who is has a cross, who has a collar, so that I know that I'm bound to Christ and that his love still exists over my heart. These things, they're just symbols. Somebody said, well, why, why do you guys always just wear black? You want to know why? Want to hear the, the, the best reason I ever heard? Because when we dress simply, we remove the aesthetic where, ta uh, where, where taste and attire can become a distraction for people who can't afford taste or attire. This whole preachers and sneakers thing, I got Skechers on right now. They say Goodyear on the bottom because I keep having to get surgery on my feet. <laughs> I'm saying we, we dress simply so that we remind ourselves that the simple life is a holy life. Think of how exhausted we all are trying to keep up. Priests dress simple. They live simple lives. If the best you can do tomorrow is simple, you're living a priestly life. All of this stuff matters. We have to come here so that we can see in broken symbols the singing, the reading of the word, coming to the table, hearing a message. It's the mouth of the river of life that leaves here mingled with fire and goes into all the world and brings simplicity and mercy and justice and tables to the world out there. I, don't, I will never teach a master class on how to talk to the atheist, how to talk to the skeptic, how to talk to the person who used to be at the church and no longer is. All I'm saying is Jesus for 2,000 years said, come and eat. Watch how well this works. Come to a table. Invite people to a table. Go to their table. Sit. Commune. Have life. You mean do those things so that we could warm them up and then talk to them about God? No. Have them over so that your life meets their life. And at some point, Jesus' life will happen between the two lives. When my life and the life of somebody who doesn't know him meet and commune, that is the way that I love God. And that is the way that I love that person. And during that time, God happens. Sometimes in ways I can measure. We had a conversation. Now they're coming to church. And in sometimes it will happen in ways we'll never know and never be able to measure. 
But when we sit and break bread, we're giving our time, we're giving our talent, we're giving our treasure. Those are the three things that Jesus gave. When you offer somebody a meal, you're offering them time, talent, and treasure. You're offering them all of who you are when you offer a meal. And that's why he offers us one. Listen to this prayer that uh, is for today. They pray this in New Zealand on the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. Give us courage to hope and to risk disappointment. Teach us to pray expectantly. And when our prayers seem to fail, bring us to pray again and again. For you are our God who acts and will act again. How do we witness to people? We pray like this. Give us courage to hope and to risk disappointment. I've said this, and I'm going to say it again. John and Steph, you guys can come up. Worship team, you guys can come up. We can all stand this morning. Everybody wants technique. Everyone wants technique. How do you talk to? How do you witness? How do you share? Jesus offers that last of all. Jesus says, come to a table. Jesus teaches us how to love. How do you love? You love in a way that normally leaves you disappointed. We don't want to love this way. How many of you love being naive and duped? Shut up. Shut your mouth. You know what? I was naive just now for thinking that would work. But that's because I love him. And I'm willing to be disappointed by him a lot more times. That was a condescending smack. That's what that is, just a little. We have to love in a way that leaves us sorrowful. Love in a way that leaves us not seeing the end of that which we're loving for. What does it say in Hebrews after it lists all of the people in the Bible who lived faithful lives? It says all of them died not having seen. They were naive. They were hopeless. It's not going to work. Moses died looking into the promised land, but never getting to touch the soil of it. Until the Mount of Transfiguration, when he stood in the promised land in the presence of Jesus. But he didn't know that's how it would happen. He was disappointed before he was blessed. Real love. If it's real love, it should almost make you lose yourself. It's not real love until you're risking vulnerability, getting walked on, not having the thing that you're hoping for. Hope that is seen is not hope. So Paul says in Romans, We are called to witness. Everybody wants to know what is the technique. Why do we want to know the technique of witnessing? Because we don't want to actually love. We want to coerce. I don't want to love. I want to know that I won. I got them. They said the prayer. Can you imagine doing that to couples who like kind of like each other? Like, let's just rush these vows. Just rush them now. Let's just say them right now. We're at Buffalo Wild Wings. Why don't we just say them right now? Right here at this table right now. Do you, Bill Bernasconi, take Lena right here at Buffalo Wild Wings? 
with some cheese curds right next to us on the table. Those things are good. We're all over the place today. You don't rush people into these things. You love them into these things. And love costs. Love hurts. Love scars. <laughs> it takes you places you love to go. It takes you places you don't want to go. The church has to be willing to love the world in a way where we have to hold each other up in disappointment that people aren't joining what we have. Not because they're going to get damned and hell is going to come down on them, but because when you know that something is so good and so freeing and, and so life-giving, you want people to experience it. And it should hurt when they don't. And so we keep putting food on the table. And we keep offering our homes. And we keep offering our shoulders. And we keep offering our money. And we keep offering our time. And so many of us come home, my son still isn't, my daughter still isn't, they're in so much trouble, they can't even, they don't realize, they've tried everything, they've tried drugs, they've tried drinking, they've tried pills, they've tried all these things. Why don't they just try this? That ache, that means you're actually loving. That means you really put yourself out there. That means your heart is exposed to a no. And that hurts. But that's witnessing because that's what Jesus did. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish you would have recognized your time of visitation. He's out there. He's open to getting hurt. That's how much he's loving. And what does he leave us with in the tension of all of that? Angels rejoice when people repent, but they also mourn when people don't. And what's in the middle of the rejoicing in the morning? A table with food on it. Breathe in the desire to want to open your homes and breathe out all the things that are keeping you from doing it. Jesus said, I've longed to eat this meal with you. On a night when he knew everyone was going to be scattered and he couldn't hold on to them the way that he used to be able to hold on to them. Every one of you in this room, you have someone that you wish you could hold on to a little tighter. And at some point, you can't. You have to let go and be vulnerable. And on that night, Jesus, of all the things he could have done, he sat down and said, I've longed to have this meal with you. As long as you come to this table, you will be held in all of your vulnerability. Bring the people that you know need a closer walk with the Lord to this table when you come. Don't just come as yourself. Bring everyone with you that you stay up at night praying for. Bring with you all of those things that keep you from having the fluent, open, home reality to really witness to the world. It says to examine ourselves before we come to the table. So let's take 30 seconds while John plays and examine 
What makes you so busy that you can't witness the way that maybe you used to? Or the way that, more importantly, the way that God is calling you to? Or, well, the things that are making me busy are the things that he called me to. So then bring the question, how can you open up room, God, so that I can hold on to what you brought me to, but also be able to witness? Because we don't want to be a sewage backup in this room. We don't want to just have the water gather here, but have it never flow out there. So what dams does God want to break down in your life so that the water of his love and mercy just gushes out of you? Is it anger? Is it overwork? Is it fear? Is it your view of your home or yourself? Is it your view of your personality? I can't do that. It's so many things. Bring it to the table. Talk to him about it. Let him chip away at that dam. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord looked down at broken bread. He looked down at brokenness. You ready? He looked down at everything you could name in your life that is all kinds of cracked up right now. And he looked at it and he held it up and he gave thanks. Because he saw purpose where there was only brokenness. He saw life where there was only death. He saw anointing where there was only uselessness. He saw himself in brokenness and he still sees himself in your brokenness. And guess what? He still holds you up every day and he still gives thanks to the Father for you. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you come to this table, open door policy, pop in anytime. Eat this in remembrance of me. Holy Spirit, tell us right now, what is keeping us from being the ministers of the gospel into the world? What is keeping us? Is it that we don't know what to say? Is it we're confused about our theology? Is it that we've heard all these different things? Is it that we don't know the reason why we minister anymore? Can you just put, one, put love for you in our heart and let that be the reason why we minister? And show us slowly over time how we can just move things around in our life. Maybe move things around in our heart. Maybe move, take down some strongholds in our mind where, where ministering won't feel like a chore, but it'll feel like the outflow of our romance with you. Just weed the garden a little bit, Holy Spirit. And help us to become a little bit more healthy to be this river of life mingled with fire for the life of the world. We are called to be the leaves on the tree of life that bring healing to those things that are unreconciled. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would descend on this broken bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and I pray, Father God, that you would descend on all of us broken people in the room right now 
that you would make something of our brokenness, that you would see yourself in it, that you would inject thanksgiving into it, that that would happen in our life, and that we wouldn't see our brokenness as a stop sign, but as a green light to go ahead and proclaim the gospel. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Receive this bread and nourish on it in your hearts by faith. And then leave here and be the river of life that flows into someone else's life. I'm going to ask Elder George if he would be on this side of the room. And I'm going to ask Elder Ron if he would be on this side of the room. And you can come down and receive. And you can come down and receive. And if you just want to spend a little bit of time with the Lord and just say, Hey, thank you for holding up my brokenness and thanking the Father for me, even though I'm in shambles. Please take a moment to thank him. Cultivate thanksgiving in your heart. And then also ask the Lord for an anointing to see and to strategize how we could have more people into our life to offer them God, not just talk to them about God, but offer them God as we offer a plate, as we offer a word, as we offer benevolence, as we offer encouragement. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.